You are listening to a Raw Collective podcast. Alrighty, this episode is brought to you by Bliss Probiotics and Mitchell's Nutrition, two really awesome companies making really cool products that I use, and I'm stoked they have jumped on board to support the podcast. First up, let's chat about Bliss Probiotics. If you want to support your natural immunity, then this is a really cool way to do it. These guys make a lozenge for your mouth that is probiotic, and it supports your microbiome in your mouth and throat, which is it's pretty unique in the microbiome kind of sphere. These guys are leading the charge globally in this sort of thing. It's all based on science. The products are made in Dunedin, and uh, it's a really good way to support your immunity. So if you're interested to learn more, check out the show notes. Secondly, you may have noticed that I'm quite into my bone broth protein powder from Mitchell's. I've posted about it numerous times on Instagram. I love it a lot. And uh, I'm really glad that these guys have jumped on board to support the podcast. I really like promoting them. They are a really cool company based in Tauranga. And they make an amazing bone broth protein powder. It's um, a very high quality protein powder. Tastes absolutely delicious. It's certainly worth checking out. So if you're interested, hit the show notes for more information about Mitchell's. Okay, very interesting podcast today, all about genes and genetic testing. I sat down and chatted with Dr. Libby Lindsay, who's an expert in the field, and we just talk all about what genetics is, what your genes are, what epigenetics is, and then also just uh, a bunch of different things of like implications for what your genes might be able to tell you about yourself, you know, like what your genes can tell you about the foods that you might be best suited to, or what exercise you might be best suited to and different things that might impact your ability to lose body fat based on your genes. There is so much that our genes can tell us and we dive right into all of that today. You know, how it can reduce inflammation, different genes that can tell you how, you know, you might need more supplements of this type and how you might, you know, better tolerate coffee and all sorts of different things. It's fascinating stuff and I know you're gonna love this chat. What's the weirdest or most interesting thing you've ever done for your health? (laughs) Wasn't ready for this one. Okay, you're going to laugh. Don't judge me. I was so desperate with my migraines at one point that I actually went to Fiji, talked to a medicine man who literally chewed, like physically chewed up this concoction in his mouth and spit it in my nose. Really? For real. What was the concoction? I don't know. Leaves and roots. Leaves and and roots and like stuff that he picked from the earth in Fiji. Wow. Yeah, that's the level of desperation I was at to get rid of the pain. How did you find this guy? I was on holiday at a swanky resort and this was someone they knew of in the community and one of the staff that I talked to said, look, my mom has had migraines her whole life and he cured her. Like this, We think this guy is pretty amazing. And I have to admit, it did help. It actually really? was one of the few things I ever tried that helped. It didn't get it all done, but there you go. Oh, I wonder what it was. Still to this day, but I mean, that's kind of the exciting part about nutrigenomics is looking at actually active ingredients that you can find anywhere in the world and maybe understanding if they have a different job or something above and beyond what they're normally used for. Mm. Kind of like when we talk about collagen, like we know that helps with hair and nails, but its genetic job does something totally different and kills bacteria and viruses. 
It's probably their leaves and roots that they use for food and cooking. X, Y, and Z do like a day job, but there was something in that concoction when mixed together that they learned through a whole history of a population helped with these symptoms. So there's a lot of value. Wow. That's interesting. <laughs> it's um. You're always going to get a good story out of me. Yeah. I can imagine you would have tried almost anything because I, I know a bit about your, your background and your story to, with your migraines. Could you give us a rundown of what you went through and how that led to your involvement in genetics? Absolutely. So I'm one of those people who has migraines in the family, all the women do, and I was no exception. I got my first migraine at seven years old. Migraines are just the most painful, horrible thing. If you haven't had one, it's like having the worst hangover of your life almost every day. People with migraines also have kind of syndromes where they have a ton of other stuff. So I had IBS and asthma and tons of allergies. I also had polycystic ovary syndrome, which messes up my hormones. So that led to fertility issues and lots of other challenges. So I was just kind of that person that was always tired, always sick, always had something going on. And that lasted for about 30 years of my life. And 20 years of that, I had six migraines a day. That's insane. It was so painful because you're also vomiting and it's stabbing pain in your eyeball. And yeah, you get a bit desperate because the level of pain is so intense. I'm super lucky that in 1997, they came out with a class of drugs called the tryptins, and those miracle drugs cured my migraines. They, like, actually took the pain away. The only thing in my whole life. I genuinely wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for pharmaceuticals. So I truly believe there's a place for natural health and great advances in medicine. They truly both play an equally important role. But the side effect of that medication was I got depressed the next day. So for seven years of my, or sorry, 20 years of my life, I had seven migraines a week, almost every day. And every day I had a decision, do I want to be in horrific pain or depressed today? So it's a terrible choice that you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. And so you can see why I was the most motivated person on the planet to find a door number three. That's why you'd go and, and seek out Fijian shamans to spit stuff up your nose. Exactly. But to my credit, I did that after 20 years of trying everything standard medicine had to offer, and it didn't work. Mm. So I tried everything that modern medicine knows to get me better. So then you start trying crazy stuff. (laughs) Yeah. So then how did that lead into genetics? So I was a patient or client first. I obviously had hit a roadblock with my own personal health journey to the point that I almost just kind of thought, look, this is my lot in life. I'm always going to be sick. I just maybe need to lower my expectations of what my life can be like and go a bit easier, uh, which was hard for me because I'm quite a motivated person. And at that exact moment in time, I learned out uh, about genetic testing. My mom bought the testing for me, and my eyes were open to this possibility that actually your genes aren't just your genes. You're not just stuck with that. There's ways to have a conversation with your genes, change the way that they work, and rewrite your story. So what I did, I got my genes tested, and I realized that my current lifestyle was hurting me, not helping me. And I was doing things that a lot of people think are right. I was practically on a vegetarian diet, low-fat, exercising every single day. These are things that a lot of people do right? But for me, they were killing me. They were making me 10 times sicker than I needed to be because I need a ton of carbs, a ton of fat, a ton of protein, and I couldn't exercise for more than three days a week. So when I made those changes, as well as a medication, 
a supplement, and a specific type of vitamin, those three things completely rewrote my story and changed my health in three weeks. Wow. Three weeks. What were the supplements or the vitamin? Yep. So the prescription drug that I need is something called calcitriol. Now, most people know about vitamin D and know that it's really important. But think about vitamin D3 as fuel for a car. Well, I'm a jet. I'm just a different machine and I need jet fuel. So calcitriol is prescription vitamin 125. It's just a different type of vitamin D that fuels my jet, right? So that was a completely giant change for me. The supplement I needed was something called sulforaphane. It's a broccoli sprout extract. And what that did is it fired up all the receptors in my body and woke up a ton of my genes that were previously in a coma and just weren't doing what they were supposed to do to keep me healthy. And the third thing I did is I took a methylated vitamin B, and that's something you and I share, is that our body just doesn't break down our food the way we hope it would. It doesn't get enough of the goodness out. So by popping in one of these supplements, we get rid of these middlemen that were slowing us down, and I'm able to fuel my body at 100%. Mm, wow. Yeah, that's amazing. I'd like to talk a bit about some of those supplements a bit more, maybe the methylation pathway, which you're talking about with that, um, that you and I both share that need for that supplement. Firstly, though, what's at a very basic level, what are genes? And like, how, do you, how do you test them? Really, really, really good question. So genes are, are well, actually what you've got, um, let's break it down a little bit more. The, the difference between DNA and genes is quite important. So DNA is the code for all life. You get it from your mom and your dad. The DNA that you are given never, ever, ever changes. It's literally who you are. It is your hardware that you'll always have. And your body comes in and reads that code and makes real building blocks from that code. I have young kids, so I always use a Lego analogy. Sorry, it's a bit boring and a bit basic, but I like to no, talk to people Lego. like they're two-year-olds, right? Because that's how my brain works. I want it as simple as possible. So you've got the Lego instruction book. It tells you how to put those pieces together to make exactly what you're supposed to build, a boat or a castle, whatever it may be. Genes are just a segment of that long strand of DNA. So DNA is so giant and so huge that it has to be bundled up in kind of like balls of yarn because there's just too much of that material. Now, the crazy, crazy thing, only 0.1% of all that DNA, all that material that makes up our body millions of pieces of information actually matters. Only 0.1% gives every single person on the planet so much variation that no two people have the same fingerprint on the whole planet. And all that comes from just 0.1% of the stuff in us. So it's too hard for our brains to comprehend how much information is really inside each so, one of us. hang on, when you say 0.1%, so do you mean that the other whole bunch of DNA, that makes us all the same, and then that 0.1 is the stuff that makes us different from each other? Is that what you mean? Yeah. Or do you mean like we only need 0.1%? We could survive with just 0.1% of our DNA. Well, I don't want to call the rest of the DNA junk stuff because mm. inevitably it will do tons of important things that we just don't understand yet. Mm. But it's kind of noise, right? Now, let me put it in perspective. We share 50% of our DNA with a banana. Really? We share 90% of our DNA with various monkey species and chimps and apes. And it's only 
that makes us each different. So it is a bit mind-blowing and pretty exciting. But this is why there's different types of gene tests. So this is a really good lead-in to the second question you asked, what do we test? So genome-wide testing, which people might have heard about during COVID, right, when you're trying to look at the variant or you're looking at, like, medical diagnoses, you have to look at all of the genome. You have to look at all the DNA because there's actually some Think of it as like shadow patterns in the noise or the junk stuff, the non-coding DNA and RNA that does allow you to diagnose or know a gene variant for COVID. But it's not important for you and me to determine how we are individually different or what's special about us or what our definition of health is. So we test just these little snips. Imagine they're just one little dot on this giant long string where the 0.1% matters. That 0.1%, we do a zoom in, we pull out just all the little bits that are the 0.1% and we test that. So very, very different than a full genome-wide test. That's good for two reasons. A, our accuracy is better, right? So if you're looking at all the noise as well, you're almost like at a tennis match where you're in the back row and when the ball lands on the line, you can't tell if it's in or out, right? So there's a level of inaccuracy in the exact call on whether that gene is a good gene or a bad gene for you. And when you have a zoom, it's like the screen zooms in, like the camera approach, right? Right on that line, 100%, you know whether it's in or out. So by testing just the part that matters, we have better accuracy. But also, we can't identify you. So all that like stuff you hear about and hype in the media, right? When you get your genes tested and there's a little bit of fear like, Could it be linked to a paternity test? You hear about these criminals that get caught because of their genes, you know, being linked back in. And also just the average daily person that's not really keen on people owning their data or a different country owning their data. We have none of those issues with the type of gene testing we look at because we're only looking at the good stuff that matters. You know, we can't identify you from it. So your secrets are safe with us. <laughs> yeah, that's reassuring. So <laughs> so we talk about you just test the good stuff. So you're testing the SNPs, is that right? Mm-hmm. And so the SNPs are just segments of that DNA. What do they do? Are they, like, responsible for certain traits that people might have? That's exactly right. So the giant long string of DNA is, like, your giant piece of string in your yarn ball, DNA. And then a shortened section of that is a gene that directly codes for a trait. So kind of from, I don't know, if you wanted to put it in inches from inch one to four, that codes your hair color. From inch four to eight is going to code your eye color and so on and so forth. You know, from eight to 12 is your blood type. But on that stretch of your gene, a gene codes for a trait. You know, there's a relationship that this segment of your DNA is going to determine your hair color's brown. Right. So that's the difference between a gene and a DNA. DNA is just this unending long ravel of raw data. The gene makes a product, hair. Yep. But on that segment of the gene from one to four, there's actually only like three dots on it that really determine your hair color or determine you because so much of that background is noise, right? So only 0.1% of that stretch of material matters determines the outcome. So we just kind of get right to the good stuff. Does that clear it up? Okay, so the SNPs are that 0.1%. Right. Okay, it's starting to make sense in my mind now. 
you measure the SNPs and that determines all the different traits that a person might have and then how that relates to someone's health, which we're going to jump into. One aspect of that is the field of nutrigenomics. What is that? Maybe I'll take a step back first. Nutrigenomics is how we change gene expression, so we how, how we alter the machine. But I'll just give you a quick background on how the machine's supposed to work, right? So ultimately, you have the DNA that codes up for something like eye color or hair color, which is fixed. So that means there's going to be multiple different dots and snips in that 1%, polygenic, couple different things that contribute to the story of what your hair or eye color is going to be, but you can't change that. So 5% of your genes are fixed where you can't change the gene expression. It's just what you've got. And there's a couple of diseases. There's a couple of like physical traits that we have and a couple of kind of non-tangibles, right? But there's also up to some reports saying 95% of your genes are flexible and they can be influenced by all the experiences in your life to act differently than they're supposed to. So this is where we get to go off piece. So nutrigenomics is kind of a cousin of epigenetics, where we look at that 95% of genes that are malleable and influenced by our life, and we try to figure out the exact relationships for each interaction to say, if you do this, then this will happen, right? So it's putting some method to the madness of not just saying your life influences your genes and that could change what you're made of. We're giving you exact formulas to do it. So epigenetics is more of a permanent change where something in your environment kind of permanently changes, not just you, but like three generations down the track. And we see this historically from kind of Auschwitz survivors from the Holocaust, where because they were so deprived of food during those great years of famine in the concentration camps, their children actually lived 30 years longer than the average person, but they also have obesity issues because they were born to a parent whose genetics were changed to give their child the ability to live in a world that's deprived of food. That's what the gene story is, right? So they store fat and they store food much better than anyone else, but they also live longer. So that's kind of an accidental way that we learned about epigenetics, that this environment permanently changed the way that the genes are read in three generations. Nutrigenomics is a little bit softer. It's the everyday conversation that we have with our genes to say, hey, on these gene expression that can be changed. So how inflamed I am, how much energy I have, how well I sleep, whether I look thin or whether I look overweight, all of that can be influenced by choices that I make every day. Simple things, the food, the supplements, the prescription drugs that I take, how much exercise and what type of exercise I do, what probiotics I take, what viruses I'm accidentally exposed to, the temperature in the room, all of these things shout a voice down at your genes and tell your body to build different building blocks and go off piece. So if you go back to the Lego analogy, so you've got an instruction manual, 5% of the time, your body's always going to build that boat that was supposed to be made. But 95% of the time, if you know the right voices to come into the conversation, you can build a plane. You can build a submarine. 
you can build a house. You can totally go off piece and teach your body to build different building blocks so that you're built of better, healthier stuff. Wow, that's amazing that your body does that. Alrighty, as I mentioned at the start of this podcast, Bliss Probiotics is one of our sponsors for this episode, so I thought I'd just let you know a little bit more about what they do, who they are, and and why I think they're so good. So Bliss Probiotics, they help to support your immune system. They're unlike most probiotics that target the gut. Bliss Probiotics specifically target the mouth and the throat, which is, you know, that's essentially, it's the gateway to your body. So they stop the bad bacteria up in the mouth and throat before it gets a chance to get inside you and start making you sick. Because there are so many things that make you sick these days. There's so many illnesses, there's so many viruses, it's been a long winter. And so I'm always interested to find different ways in which I can help keep myself and my family well. And Bliss Probiotics is one of the things that we do. We take lozenges every day as a preventative measure to support our immunity, keep ourselves healthy. Because at the end of the day, who wants to be sick? I know I don't want to be sick and I don't want a sick family. I don't want sick kids. We just take, uh, take one lozenge a day. They taste delicious. My son loves them. He's always asking for his lozenge in the morning. So take Bliss Probiotics to increase your good bacteria in your mouth and your throat, maintain good health and protect your family against chills and colds. I also love that they're backed by science and made locally in Dunedin. So if you're interested to learn more, check out the show notes for a direct link to their website and you can have a look for yourself and learn more and see how you can get yourself some if you're interested. And now back to the chat. Okay, so nutrigenomics is those outside influences and how they are then affecting your DNA so that different traits are expressed, right? And then the epigenetics is like the long-term effects of those expressions that is then potentially passed on for three generations. Yep, so the word that we use for epigenetics is their persistent or permanent changes to your gene expression. So it's kind of like, think of it as like a giant like on and off switch, right? Like heavy lifting. So you put this thing on and it stays on for a very long time. Nutrigenomics is very fluid and malleable. So for three weeks, you go on a diet and you lose weight because you do this right lifestyle changes, but that also goes backwards, right? And when you stop doing the work, you go back to your normal preset. So then how long do you have to be doing something for it to then be an epigenetic change? Well, it's very, very rare to have full, proper, persistent epigenetic changes. And we really, science is still catching up with that. So we really only know about persistent epigenetic changes in the context of pregnancy and the first kind of couple weeks of life. Because the other critical piece for epigenetics is to have these permanent changes, it has to have a lifestyle impact come at a critical window. So that's one of the terms that we use in science that's really fascinating. During this one week, whether you get exposed to something or not, could change three generations of life. Right, so if that's in that critical window, it could just be one week of doing something differently. Do you want me to give you like the cardinal example for yes, how that works? please. Okay, so the cardinal example for this is in rat babies. Rat pups, in the first week of life, rat pups, if they have a really great mom who licks their fur, every time the mom licks their fur, they sprout a stress receptor in their brain. And almost their full capacity of stress receptor ability is closed out in one week. So their entire ability to deal with stress for the rest of their life, their offspring's life, and their offspring's life after that is determined in one week. 
whether their mom licked them or not. So a rat pup that was separated from its mom or the mom died or for whatever reason it didn't get licked in that first week of life, it won't have very many stress receptors. So every time a big wave of stress comes into its brain, it doesn't have many receptors to gobble it up. So that stress stays around in its brain much longer than you want it to, and its experience of stress is prolonged and drawn out. So that one week of life basically determines whether that rat is going to be stressed or not. Wow, that's fascinating. Do we know of any windows in humans? It's all critical windows in pregnancy and in the first month of life for human babies. So this is an amazing, amazing opportunity to give our children much better futures than we had from a health perspective, knowing how to utilize that. But again, this is still young science. It's not widely used. The science of nutrigenomics is very well used. It's been commercialized, used in the States and Australia for up to 16 years. The epigenetic pieces of it still need to cross major thresholds to kind of be used in a medical way. And it's still a young science. Now, epigenetics in adults is even more young, but so fascinating, right? If we can find windows, critical windows in adult life where we could extend our lifespan or health span by 30 years by doing the right thing in that one week, think of the possibilities. It's pretty exciting, right? Yeah, it really is. These these critical windows, are they just determined by our genes and like and by timeline of your life or are they can you influence them to be like you know say you're in some really stressed out state like is that a critical window that's a really really interesting question i think there's potential for that to be true in the future but generally critical windows are very pre-programmed windows written into your gene code and your dna for the future when so kind of like when a woman starts menopause, it's kind of written into her genes, right? So yeah. critical windows can be individual. Each person has a critical window at a different time. And stress can kind of accelerate your aging process and things to get to that critical window faster because you're burning through your telomeres and so on and so forth. But generally, critical windows are quite set. It's a whole area of excitement to look into more in the future. I don't think anyone knows the exact answer to that question, because it's an interesting possibility. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I find that very fascinating. I Me mean, too. yeah, you could you could then sort of isolate and determine some different critical windows in your lifespan, and then how you can then use those windows to turn on some different genes. So, like an example of one of the things that we know about that's kind of in the hypothesis. We've seen a lot of correlations, but it's not cause and effect yet in adults. Well, actually in teenagers is the use of Roaccutane for acne, that really, really high dose vitamin A. It is actually epigenetic for depression. Really? Yeah. So actually people who do have Accutane at any point in their life before they're 18 have a much, much higher predisposition of having depression at some point in their life as an adult. Wow. And you can't undo it. It is a permanent change that's passed on. That you're then passing on for three generations. Now, the three generations is still speculative in humans, right? Because we only have things like Auschwitz. Like when you're looking back, we have we, it's, it's not really ethical to do these kind of trials moving forward in animal and kind of worm research, the way that everything's done in epigenetics. They can see it working for many, many generations. And we can see the correlations when we look at the Holocaust. But I guess just from a scientific perspective, I'll leave myself a bit of wiggle room to say it's not proven to be cause and effect, but we can certainly see the patterns. Okay. Right. I want to talk a little bit about nutrition. So how does knowing someone's genetics 
influence their nutrition or how can it influence their approach to their nutrition and what they eat? So step number one, you read your DNA and you realize what foods your body likes and what foods your body doesn't like, right? All you have to do is look at people from different cultures around the world to see that different foods suit different people, right? So there's almost the base level cultural differences and then our individual differences. So I personally don't believe that there's any single food in the world that's good for everyone and any single food that's bad for everyone. I think there are foods that are good and bad for you, and it could be completely opposite foods that are good and bad for someone like you sitting across the table from me. So your DNA is literally just that instruction code, like with the Legos, that says this is what's in the good box, this is what's in the bad box for you, and then you can build your choices off of that. So I truly believe nutrition needs to be personalized. Do you think that that nutritional component of our genetics is most closely correlated to our origin of evolution? Could you then sort of look back as to where you think you, your ancestors evolved and then what type of foods they were eating mostly and then that would be an indicator of what foods you'd be best suited to? I think that definitely gives you like a categorical approach, like putting yourself in one of X amount of boxes, it gives you some good information. But we, we live in a pretty blended world, right? So it's pretty rare you're going to find one culture that is pure, if that makes sense. We're so well blended, particularly in New Zealand, mm, right? Yeah. Everybody's blended. So yes, there's going to be a component of your ancestry that comes in that will give you tips and insight into a mismatch or an alignment with your genes. But that 0.1%, no two people on the planet have the same fingerprint. It doesn't matter what culture in, you're in, there's still going to be huge variations within that culture and with individuals. So ultimately, you never really know till you get a gene test and you can actually see your individual differences. There's just no other way to infer or to trial and error or to guess your way to that information. Yeah, it's pretty difficult, I, I think. Um, one thing, though, I sort of wonder, I want to get your thoughts on this. You know how some people just don't like certain foods? Do you think that there's some sort of genetic component to that and that maybe your genes are telling you that you don't really, you know, you're not really with that well suited to that food and then so you just don't really like it. You can't really explain why you don't like it. But maybe there's some sort of subconscious thing happening in your body that's telling you that that food's not that great for you. Yes. Well, there's actually an even simpler answer to that question. Genetically, you can tell what taste buds you have for what you're going to want and what you don't want. So typical things like coriander and licorice, right, they're quite polarizing. You either love it or hate it. You can kind of look at your genes from an interesting perspective and say, hey, you're not going to like coriander. And you're like, cool, I don't. Thanks for confirming that for me. Um, but yeah, so absolutely, there is like some just black and white testing that you can do. But I think you're talking about a more interesting concept, right? Of actually, if your body needs zinc, are you going to crave oysters? Are you going to crave foods yeah. that are right for you? I don't see it as much with people disliking foods that are bad for them, but, but we see it proven time and time again that the foods that are real powerhouses for people, they do generally crave. So pregnant woman, right? she will crave all these things that actually she really needs for the baby because you're running low in a certain vitamin or a mineral. And so on a smaller level, we all kind of do that ourselves also. So typically, you even see this in kids quite pronounced when you do recommend a supplement 
for them that I need. I remember one little boy in particular who was really, really low in zinc, not on a blood test, but you could tell his genes didn't allow him to break down or use as much zinc as the average person. And his mom got him these little drops and they taste disgusting, right? He snuck away in the corner and literally drank the entire bottle because he's just like, like, you know, like your body does crave these things. I know what you're talking about and they are disgusting, those they were really, really gross. But to him, this was the best thing that had ever come into his life. And he wow. snuck off in the corner to suck the bottle dry. <laughs> so there you skull go. The, so I definitely think drops. our bodies are pretty clever if we listen to them. Yeah, I think so too. It's just so hard to figure that out and hard to listen to your body a lot of the time because we've just got so much information coming at us, you know, through our eyes and ears and taste buds and everything. And the feedback loop a lot of the time is so long that you just don't know how certain foods are affecting you. And and that's why I found my genetic testing so valuable. One aspect of it that I found quite interesting was my need for, I have quite a high protein need. Can you talk a little bit about how your genetics can, or like what it can tell you about that sort of stuff, like your your needs from like a macronutrient point of view? And then also, I remember you saying that I think it was, you know, some people are more genetically they're better at being vegetarians than other people. Like, how does that work? Yep. So ultimately, every person's body is going to be able to break down food and take X amount of the goodness from it. And some people have a lot more challenge of extracting the goodness than others. So that's one piece of it, how you break down the foods that you have and get the good stuff out of it, the usable stuff. But also that 0.1%, we're also very, very different. And you do have these kind of different origin stories that everyone has. But certain genes are turned on or off by certain foods. And that could be a vegetable, that could be a fish, that could be a protein, right? Every food we put in our body has the ability to turn on and off genes. Uh, One really notable, super interesting one is fish. For certain people with certain gene sets, if they just have one serving of fish a month and they're a male, their risk of prostate cancer goes down by 70%. Wow, that's amazing. I feel like that should be a... I mean, that just in itself should be something that's, like, funded by the government. Agreed. You know? Yeah. I might use my dad, actually, as a case study because he's super interesting. He was one of the very first people to be diagnosed with chronic fatigue because it originated in the U.S., and that is kind of caused by EBV virus, right, triggers this genetic reaction in your body. Um, But my dad was a vegan, kind of diehard vegan for a while there, and He got half the equation right because eating a high amount of vegetables was very, very important for his genes. So that turned on a lot of good genes for him. But he also had a very, very high need for protein. So ethically, he wasn't comfortable with eating meat, but being a vegetarian as opposed to a vegan and having egg and dairy was something he could do. And the egg and dairy, the protein from that, and the gene expression was so powerful for him that we really started to make some headway with his chronic fatigue, finally. And also, my dad has that that recommendation that if he has one serving of fish a month, it lowers his prostate cancer by 70%. So for him, the trade-off to have one serving of fish a month was also the little bit of stretch he could go as a vegetarian because the payoff was so high. So for me, my protein need is huge. I'm also somebody that runs anemic very easily. And 
I just could not survive as a vegetarian. My energies are so low, right? So having a decent amount of vegetables was important for me, but I don't have the high need that my dad did to have a ton of vegetables, right? For me, I'm all about proteins. I'm all about carbs. I'm all about fat. Because actually what I have is I've, I've got multiple genes, but one notable one is leptin. And it's all about gauging your, your kind of fat and your energy levels. So imagine I've got four tanks, your protein tank, your carb tank, your fat tank, your sugars tank, right? And they're all sitting there. Now, if any one of those tanks in my brain goes too low, even if it's just the protein category, right, but the other three are full, it sets off this high alert system in the oldest part of my brain called the brainstem. It almost talks back to our caveman origins and says, we're going to go through a period of famine. Eat everything in the world. One of those gauges has gone low. We're going to go three weeks without food. Store, store, store. Eat, eat, eat. And literally, the brainstem hijacks my frontal lobe, our normal thinking brain, right? And I will just binge eat for like a day till I've satisfied enough stores to protect me for three weeks straight. So that's why I have to be a balanced eater. If I cut any of the food groups out or lower any of the food groups too much, it's a real detriment to my health. It puts me in a fight or flight panic attack mode that is not good for my body overall, right? But there are some people that are born to have just so many vegetables and tons of longevity and they don't need a lot of the other food groups. But almost everyone can benefit from the egg and the dairy because that does work on your methylation system that's about mental health, right? So it's just finding the right types of ways to get the proteins, the right types of ways to get the ingredients, and there's kind of everything in between. People are super high protein, like yourself. You just kind of have a bigger gauge on protein and a smaller one on the other sides. Yeah, that's interesting. The um, vegan vegetarian thing I think is interesting as well because I think, you know, you see it on Instagram all the time and you see some vegan proponents, you know, who are very pro plant-based diets for everyone. And I think just like any diet, like you, we've just been talking about, that no one diet's right for everyone. And and I think the people that do really well on plant-based diets, I think they probably are genetically good on plant-based diets. And so they think this is awesome for everyone, but maybe it's just better for them personally because of their genes. I guess if you are looking to do a plant-based diet, then it's probably quite, well, it would be quite beneficial to get your genes tested, wouldn't it? Just to determine what sort of, it'll help you determine what sort of supplements you might be requiring, right? Absolutely. I mean, this whole push toward more of a plant-based, non-processed diet is a great one. It's a really great push. And again, almost everyone can benefit from having more vegetables, but it's about not forgetting or not knowing that these other categories may play a much bigger role in your health than you understand. So absolutely, I think people gravitate to the things that help them, and they find their community with other people where it helped them, like you with your cold water, me with eating tons of carbs and fat and protein, and vegetarians and vegans with finding their community and other people that have had the same success stories that they've had. So we're going to naturally gravitate almost, you know, uh, unconsciously to the areas that fix us. But there's another story with why a plant-based diet could be helping people. So actually, if your detox system genetically is not working well, by switching to a plant-based diet, 
you're actually just removing the workload. So your machine is still broken, but you feel better because plants take less work to process. So you're actually just by removing the workload for about a year or two, you'll feel pretty fantastic on a plant-based diet. But a lot of vegetarians and vegans actually notice a big, big dip at about a year and a half where they're like, I'm not going backwards. What the heck is going on? I was so healthy. I was doing so well, but I'm literally going backwards now. Because it, it's at that point that you really start to deplete your stores of all the other vitamins and minerals and the things you were getting from the meat and the proteins before and your vitamin Bs and your vitamin Ds and all these other things, you use the last stores of that. You're not replacing it. And that's when you go backwards because actually you've put a Band-Aid on it. You haven't fixed the underlying cause problem, which is that your detox machinery is broken. So that's the really, really exciting part of genetics is we get under the hood, we look at the machinery, we get to this causal place where we make sure all those pieces are working well, and then you can overlay these different food choices on top of that. But that's not to say, I think when you talk about vegan and vegetarianism, there's another very, very important aspect to it. It is better for the environment. It is a religious choice for a lot of other people. There's so many other aspects that come into that decision-making, but in a purely blinders on, is it the most healthy choice for your bodies and genes? That's a very different conversation, and it's a different aspect. And then marrying up the two, kind of like how my dad did, he could segue into eggs, dairy, and that one serving of fish because it, it could still fit in his beliefs. It could still fit in his concept of being the true, you know, environmentalist hero that he is, but get the absolute best reward for his body. So there's always a middle ground. Mm. Just talking on the, the milk aspect of it, you had, like you weren't drinking milk, you were vegetarian, you were vegan, or you weren't drinking milk, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm lactose intolerant. You're lactose intolerant. So I wasn't drinking milk for that reason. Yeah. But then what happened? Did you then fix your machinery and now you can drink milk? Is that right? Yeah. So actually, and this is where things get real exciting, yeah. at least from my geeky science perspective. But as good scientists, we all know kind of the day job. We know the biochemical job and role for things. Calcium and vitamin D make bones, right? Everybody's got a job. But this gene expression job actually can do totally different things. So for me, on a day level, I had a susceptibility to lactose intolerance. But people seem to think things like celiacs and gluten and lactose intolerance are like fixed. You just get a gene test. You figure out if you've got it. You're stuck with it. It's 100% and that's done. It doesn't work that way. Lactose intolerance gluten intolerance, even celiacs, are actually only 30% driven by genetics and 70% diagnosed from symptoms, i.e. you don't have the symptoms, you don't have the disease. Isn't that encouraging? So for me, I do have a predisposition to have lactose intolerance, and I was showing the symptoms, so I did have a lactose intolerance. But by eating cheese, so the lactose intolerance hierarchy goes that, like, Actual milk and, like, ice cream upsets your stomach the most. Yogurt is kind of a middle ground. And cheese, particularly hard cheese, upsets the stomach only slightly. You know, it really doesn't stir you up too much. So for me, by eating cheese three times a day, getting 900 milligrams of calcium, I was able to turn on some very important genes that helped my body with inflammation. So because... 
I could tolerate the cheese way better than the milk, and the cheese was doing a gene job that was a hundred times more powerful than my day job weakness to milk. I was able to use my strength to be my biggest weakness and literally turn off the gene expression that was causing my lactose intolerance. Wow. So how common is your situation then? Like if, if someone's listening to this and they're like, I have lactose intolerance, I can't handle milk. Would you say that maybe it would be worthwhile for them doing what you did and trying some hard cheese and seeing if it makes any difference to them? Well, definitely hard cheese is something they'll get away with better than the milk, but I think they'd need a gene test to really figure out if it's going to be powerful or not. So we know of 200 lifestyle recommendations. That could be a prescription drug, a supplement, food, a temperature, all sorts of different things. There's 200 things that are scientifically proven to change the genes, the 200 genes that we know of that are very, very important for basic human health. Cheese is one of them. For me, it was in my top five. So it is powerful. But for tons of other people, cheese could actually be quite a wimpy recommendation for them that's not really going to fix their lactose intolerance, but eating oysters could. So we all have such completely different formulas and stories about how we talk to the genes that actually get the work done. But absolutely, there are people out there that might have the exact same story as me, but they will probably find that they've also got different pieces that'll be their magic missing piece. Yeah, no, I get that. Yeah, I'm trying to think what my top five things were for my genetic testing. Can you remember? I can't even remember. No, I can look it up pretty quickly. I mean, the piece that we really focus, I can remember your supplements and your lifestyle. Yeah, I can remember that I was... Really um, predominantly. The cold is a big lifestyle factor for me that can, is in my top five things, sort of affects me beneficially. Um, which is great because I like doing that, which is also interesting because I think my body just um, discovered that by itself and then that's why I like to do it. Although I never really understood, like I, I could never really pinpoint exactly why I like doing it. So to, to then have it backed up by my genetics was really reassuring. So I was like, yeah, okay, that, that makes so much sense now. That's why I love doing it. Hello, jumping in again, Um, just a little moment to talk about one of our sponsors, Mitchell's Nutrition, and specifically their bone broth protein powder. Because if you want to up your protein intake, you want to nourish your gut and support your skin, muscles and joints in one easy and delicious protein powder, I reckon this is probably the one for you. Mitchell's Nutrition was born out of a search for ways to support the body's natural healing abilities and optimize daily performance. Their mission is to elevate the standard of mental and physical well-being of Kiwis so that they can keep doing the things they love for as long as possible. Their bone broth protein powder is dairy-free, gluten-free, legume and grain-free, low in sugar and boasts a 100% natural occurring full amino acid profile. It's seriously a very high quality protein powder and I absolutely love it. Using a traditional slow cooking technique to extract the goodness from 100% grass-fed New Zealand beef bones before stirring in some natural flavour and monk fruit. That is all it is, there's nothing else and I love that Mitchell's Nutrition has a very uh, a very high commitment to their transparency. What you see is what you get. Now, being the first of its kind here in New Zealand, being a bone broth protein powder, you might be wondering what the taste is like and I've got to say it's the best tasting protein powder I've ever tasted. I have the vanilla one every day and it tastes like a vanilla milkshake without a word of a lie. So if you're interested to learn more, check the show notes. Now back to the podcast. Okay, so you have a lot of clients. You've seen like hundreds of clients over your time 
through testing their genetics, Probably right? about 4,000 in the last 10 years, actually. <laughs> okay, that's quite a few. So what are, some, like, are there some common things that you've helped people through? Yes, I have. It's actually in my book, and yeah. it's called The 50 Common Most Health Complaints That People Have. So that's probably where I've come I didn't know you had a book. When did this come out? <laughs> it's not like a book you'd get at Whitcools. It's a book that's part of an education course. So I've worked okay. training lots of practitioners. So if you're a doctor, a pharmacist, a naturopath, a nutritionist that's interested in genetic testing, I created a course that made it faster and easier, kind of like interpreting those gene results for dummies. Because it is crazy hard. There's so much information and so many interactions that I just made it simpler for the health professional. What I did find, though, is that most of us are all suffering from the same types of things. Because the gene testing I personally work on finds its core and its foundation in inflammation, that can help with almost any human health complaint. The reason for that is the unifying theory of disease out of Harvard tells us that about 90% of human health conditions start with the very first domino in the cycle of things, inflammation going wrong. So the genetic testing I look at always starts with the machinery of inflammation and fixes that first. The spill-on effect from that is that it helps so many common health complaints. So the easiest, fastest things that switch on with about three weeks of work is things like eczema, upset stomachs. Everybody's got something going on with their digestion, your sleep, your energy, your aches and pains, and you're just your kind of overall clarity of thinking. So those are really, really common wellness factors that we work with. But as far as medical conditions that you can then target in, you know, the next three to 12 weeks after that, I had migraine, I had infertility issues, miscarriages, polycystic ovary syndrome, and, you know, PMS issues, all sorts of allergies and atopic stuff. So people probably gravitated to me in the beginning because of their own stories. A very, very beautiful story I had early on in my career was um, a woman who had tried for 10 years to have a child, had been through seven courses of IVF. She got pregnant naturally within two months of working with me. So those are the things that just wake you up, right? So people who had very similar stories to me, I've helped, but it helps Everyone. So arthritis, right? All sorts of cancers and type 2 diabetes. We can have people basically not showing up in their bloods anymore as a diabetic after six weeks of working with us, getting blood pressure lowered, cholesterol, all those types of things. Uh, we al also work with a number of the All Blacks and Olympic athletes and high-end people who need to perform both mentally and physically at their best to make sure that they have a nice long career, don't pay the price down the track, and actually really healthy into retirement. We love working with families and kids, kids with eczema, kids' food intolerances. They're prolific, right? I could talk all day about the ways that we help people, but almost any health condition people have, we can make some improvement toward getting them on their health journey and really, really started because it all starts with inflammation. Are there any instances you've had where, where it just hasn't worked for them? You know, like, because what I want to know is like, how much of it is genetic? Great question and absolutely right. About 5 to 10% of people that work with us will encounter what we call a handbrake. Handbrakes are things that are powerful enough to shout at your genes louder than your lifestyle recommendations and throw this big crowbar handbrake onto the whole thing and stop your progress. 
So what we have in our programs is actually, if you don't get results in three weeks, we know you've got a handbrake. And that in itself is huge, so valuable. This handbrake has been stopping you from being your healthiest self probably your whole life. So types of things that could be a handbrake, crazy amounts of stress. We all have a little bit of that post-COVID. Significant hormone imbalances, like if you've got a progesterone or estrogen imbalance, like PCOS, those things are very, very powerful, and there's no other system that will break it down. Probably the most common reason is bacterial imbalances. There's so much great hype around biofilm and repopulating your gut and the gut-brain connection. That is so real and so, so powerful. But also latent chemical exposure. A lot of people in New Zealand and the kind of boomer population um, that lived and worked on farms or lived and worked in the marine industry got exposed to some type of chemical that really likes to lodge in their fat and cause liver issues. And so that's actually something that works its way out of their body during our processes and can slow down some of the improvements that we get. But the great thing about a handbrake is it makes you stop and kind of take a detour on what you thought was your health journey, fix this handbrake, get you back on the journey. And once you get over that hump of kind of getting a little bit worse or, or dealing with this extra nuisance, you're the healthiest you've ever been. And it's one of the best light bulb moments you can have in your life is removing one of these handbrakes. It feels like it's hard to do, you know, like to figure out exactly what, like then, you know, if there's a handbrake, how do you then figure out what that handbrake is? Like, How did you figure out that it was the chemicals that's in someone's life or whether it's something else? At Ingenious, we have a really, really detailed triage process that was developed by myself and a Stanford medical doctor who was also a cardiac anesthesiologist and also had a PhD at Caltech with 20 drug patents to his name, one of the most successful high-achieving 40-year-olds you would ever learn about. But We've triaged an entire program at Ingenious to do just that. So we've taken all the best of the up-to-date science, all of our combined clinical experiences over the last 10 years to actually come up with a program where we set you on this journey and we shrink down what normally takes people two to 10 years to figure out through trial and error and still has a whole, has some blind spots and gaps in the story. And we shrink it down to a three to six month journey to get people there. So when I use the word triage, it really is just like nurses. When you go into ER, they will triage. This goes there, this goes that. We have all these processes that are tried and proven in 4,000 people over 10 years. We just know, and I think for myself, as always being the case people couldn't solve, that's what I wanted more than anything in the world, to sit down and when something didn't work the way it was supposed to, for someone to say, that's good. Now I know exactly what to do with you because we see this all the time. So that's the answer. We see it all the time. We know what questions, what symptoms, what things to look for to point to those handbrakes. And what people love about us is we're always going to be looking from a cost-effective way. We're going to deal with the most likely cheapest handbrake first. Um, Because I think that was one of my issues with being on this health journey. You spend so much money on things that may or may not even be useful for you. You want to put your money where you're going to get the biggest value right away. Yeah, that's a big aspect of it as well, isn't it? Because you're right, all this trial and error, health in general can be really expensive. So expensive. Yeah. (laughs) I want to know a little bit about exercise and fat loss and how your genetics can impact those 
aspects of your life. That's written really clearly and really well in your genetics, kind of whether you were designed to be thin, whether you were designed to be overweight, how much muscle you can put on and how quickly. Those things are, they're not fixed, but they're a really clear message. But they're also one of the easiest things to change, which is super, super exciting. So a various amount of combinations of exercise, but also food come into losing weight. I will point out that lifestyles are also really, really different for the goal you're looking for. So my lifestyle, how much exercise, what I eat, how much I recover, all that type of stuff. When my goal is to be in a low inflammation state, so I'm super healthy, I live my longest, I don't get migraines, could be a totally different lifestyle picture than when I'm in weight loss mode. And it's really important to know, it just makes sense, right? Use a different set of tools for a different goal. It's as simple as that. But when you're purely in weight loss mode, there's a ton of stuff you can learn about how to exercise, when to exercise, and when not to exercise that will give you such a better return on investment for your efforts so you can really make some gains. But probably one of the things people don't realize is that for some people, exercise doesn't come into the equation for weight loss at all. Really? So for me, when I'm trying to lose weight, I shouldn't exercise. I should be on a really, really low-calorie diet, and that's what works. So for me, when I exercise, I actually just make myself inflamed, and I overeat because I'm really hungry from all that exercise that I did, and I can't achieve my weight loss goals because I'm 100% about food when it comes to my story for weight loss. And there's some people that are 100% about exercise. They need to exercise at a 70% VO2 max, super intensive, one-hour training, seven days a week, for three weeks to lose weight. But what they eat kind of doesn't matter. And then there's everywhere in between, right? Everywhere on that scale of some people are 50-50 and they're both super important. But there's lots of different styles of exercise. There's lots of different diets and food programs and ways of restricting calories or fats or this, that. It's a very complex story, but you want to just know what's my food story and what's my exercise story from weight loss. But even more importantly is temperature. Temperature is the most underrated piece of weight loss and fat burning. By my estimations, it makes up 30% of the equation. This is probably why wow, you 30, love— 30%, that's, yeah, that's big. Yep. So if you don't think about temperature, you're just making your job much harder. You're not using this really, really helpful tool. But like you, who loves your cold pools, and it's great for your inflammation, and it's also great for you to lose weight. So you're quite lucky that you're quite consistent. I am the opposite. I need to be in hot temperatures to keep my inflammation down, and I need to be in hot temperatures to lose weight. So if I were to do cold baths, I'd get super sick, get my migraines, and gain weight. Wow. So we're just so different. That's interesting. Yeah, because you sort of think about, oh, I, I have been thinking cold water, you know, it's going to be good for everyone. But certainly it wouldn't be good for someone like you. We're all just so different, and isn't that amazing? And one really cool fact I'll throw out there is um, Māori and Pacifica people who have, and hey, lots of people in New Zealand have some tendril of connection to those populations. Because their history was to be on a hot island and they go out for cold sea voyages, a lot of people who have a strong pull of that genetics need aggressive alternating of hot, cold, hot, cold, 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off, and it's the fastest way that they'll burn fat. Wow. That's, um, I mean, that came up in my genetics was the, the hot and cold for fat loss. Um, in terms of my exercise, it was 50-50 diet to exercise. 
Are there any other common ancestral genetic traits like that that you know of that are quite interesting? Well, I mean, some really obvious ones. This is kind of a different test, but obviously um, amylase is a copy number. It's very different than the SNAP testing we were talking about. It's just looking actually at how many copies, i.e. how strong is a certain enzyme in your saliva, and that saliva breaks down starchy carbs. So if you have a ton of that amylase, a really strong concentrated saliva, it breaks down your starchy carbs, and it actually does 70% of the job. So we always think about breaking down our carbs and all this digestion in our stomach. But as a dentist, I can refresh people's memories and say, don't lose sight of your mouth. It's super important. 70% of the work happens in your mouth in the first 30 seconds that you eat your carbs. Very, very cool fact. But that amylase, super, super high, strong amylase, is far, far, far more common in Asian populations than in a New Zealand population. And this is why... Many Asian populations um, get away with eating rice very, very well and not paying a price. Whereas in New Zealand, most people who eat rice are paying a big price for it. They're getting sleepy, three o'clock nap. Me, that's in the me. I, I, I have rice and I'm I get really tired. Yep, it happens within two hours. So the biggest test, you know, like a symptom test for yourself, is have sushi at lunch and at three o'clock in the afternoon, you're like, oh, I want my nana nap. Come see us. Do a gene test with us because we can definitely improve how your amylase reacts and you definitely want to learn about your starchy carbs and figure out how you can do it better. Um, So, I mean, that is a generalization because, of course, within every population, we have so much variation, but rice is the hardest of all the starchy carbs to process. So I know that so many people are aware of gluten for good reasons because it does cause reactions in their body. And so rice becomes the grain of choice, but it is also the hardest starchy carb to process. And if you're having a really, really high rice-based diet and you've got any signs of inflammation, so pain or medical conditions that are won't go away or allergies or intolerances, your inability to process that rice might be adding to the problem instead of helping you. Wow. The amylase thing is something that came up in my genetic testing. I have very low amylase, so some of the recommendations I had from you were to have tomatoes or like tomato sauce or um, uh, lemon, you know, with the acidity to help sort of kickstart that amylase in my mouth, which was, yeah, very interesting. Before we – we're sort of running out of time here, but I just want to know what excites you most about this field? Like where do you see it – going in the near future and then maybe in the distant future? I guess just at a totally personal level, what excites me about this field is I lived 30 years as one of the most unhealthy, sick people on the planet despite all my efforts. And by learning about this and changing my body before I got pregnant with my daughters, I have given them a new life. They don't have any of the problems that I had. I have given them the gift of a healthy life. So that excites me beyond belief, and it is the pure driver behind our company to give as many people that possibility as we can. But it's not just about a new life or changing healthy young people. The other part that totally excites me, and and we chatted about this sort of in our our pregame warm-up, is this whole concept of how long do you live? lifespan, but then also your health span. But then I think of that as like a 2D pathway and then this 3D pathway of wellness and optimization and happiness is is so much bigger. The possibility for joy and satisfaction out of life is more than most of us know. And the best example I saw that a very dear friend of mine had muscular dystrophy 
which is a degenerative fixed gene disorder that you can't change. And generally, people with that condition don't live beyond 30. I met her when she was 32, so she was already defying the odds. We did the gene testing, and probably the biggest compliment in my personal and professional life was she said the last two years of her life, she did pass away at 34, were the best two years of her life. She'd never been healthier, happier, more excited by life, more satisfied by life. And that's incredible. That's what wakes me up every day and makes me think there's unlimited potentials with how we can move forward. Our experience as humans could be so much better. Yeah, absolutely. And just uncovering more of the science around understanding our bodies, right, and and how it all interacts with our environment. From the scientific level, are there any, like, advances in the science of genetics that you think is about to, you know, it's going to happen soon or there's stuff that might happen in our lifetime that you think would be interesting? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I feel like this one is just, like, very top of mind are pets. So if you don't have kids, you have pets. And if you have kids, you probably have pets as well, right? And I find it really, really sad that our little pups and cats don't stay with us longer. I have a Cavalier King Charles Spaniel, and she's the cutest thing in the world. I got her when I was pregnant with my first daughter. So she's, you know, there's never been a life without her in the family. And I took her to the vet the other day, and she's eight, and she's now senior. She's eight years old, and she's considered a senior. (laughs) And Cavaliers only live usually till they're about 12. Now, I'm really lucky. It's a short lifespan, isn't it? It is a really short lifespan, right? But because I've been giving her little nutrigenomic tips and tricks since she was a little baby pup, her bloods were perfect. They're like, we've never seen a calf this healthy at eight. But they do have a genetic weakness for heart murmur, and that's a physical, mechanical thing she's always had. Wait, so so when you say you've been giving her nutrigenomic little things, have you tested her DNA? Yes. Have you? We have. So we haven't commercialized it yet, but that is the whole new frontier for Ingenious is pets. Get out of that. That's so cool. So with pets, it's not just about, A, we want to improve the quality of their life, but it's also, can we increase the lifespan of our pets? Now, this is this is breaking edge research. We're not there yet, but we're definitely getting there in combination with stem cell research and mitochondrial research and some of the super cool RNA stuff that we're releasing in the next year. We're on a precipice of doing something really special there. Oh, that is so exciting. That wraps up our conversation today. Libby, thanks so much for your time. If people want to track down you or Ingenious or learn a bit more, how can they do so? Our website's all online. It's just called myingenious.com. My, because it's all about you and me. We're just saying, actually, be selfish. It's a good thing. we got to find a better word for it. Yeah. But it's actually all about you. And, you know, self-care is a really good thing. Ingenious is spelled in a really funny way. We thought we were being clever. It's got the word gene in it, G-E-N-E. Uh, but don't worry. We're really clever with Google, and we've got a – it'll spell check correct you. Uh, but yeah. I think it is clever. I really, lo- <laughs> I really love the name. I think it's brilliant. Thank you. Um, yeah, so we're online, myingenious.com, but we're also, uh, you can find us in um, most life pharmacies and most Unichem pharmacies in New Zealand as well. So ask your local pharmacist about us. They're incredibly great people to use as your first step guru on your health journey. I'm a huge fan of pharmacists. I think they're one of the most underappreciated, underutilized powerhouses of the health workforce, and they're so convenient. We all know our local pharmacists, right? Have a pretty good relationship with them. So yeah, talk to your pharmacist, hop online. Great. Or call you, 
text you. Yeah. DM you. Yeah, DM me. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, hey, thanks so much, Libby. Thanks so much, Art. Much yeah. appreciated. Right. Thanks for having me today. Oh, one last question before you go. What did you think of the podcast? Did you like it? Because if you did, then please rate it and review it and share it and tell people about it. Tell your mum, tell your dad, tell some random guy down the road. It really does make a big difference and it helps us to keep creating this podcast and sharing this awesome information with you for free. This show is brought to you by Raw Collective, the podcast company behind the creation of this show. You will find all updates on the Raw Collective Instagram as well as on the website rawcollective.co. Now get out of here. Go have a good day. Get out of here. Bye.